Hi folks, welcome back for another episode of Bibliology. My name is Patrick and I'm your host. Today on the podcast you'll get to hear my interview with Dr. William Ross on his recent research and book dealing with a mysterious and controversial entity known as the Septuagint. As will become clear quite early on in this interview, it's difficult to define what the Septuagint is, but for convenience sake we can think of this as referring to ancient Greek translations of the books of the Old Testament. And this is a very theologically interesting topic, this isn't just academic, as these were the translations that the early Christian church predominantly used, at least in their writings. And so when it comes to things like textual plurality, Christian canon, and some of the messiness that exists when we compare old manuscripts and try to reconstruct the most reliable Old Testament text we have, um, inevitably we get back to questions of authority and inspiration and Will, our guest today, doesn't shy away from these questions and I think you'll really benefit from some of his insights. He is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a researcher in linguistics and early Judaism, specializing in the entity under discussion today, the Septuagint. Without further ado, let's get on to the show, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Hello, Will. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Yeah, thank you very much. Very nice to be here. We're going to be speaking about your new book on the Septuagint, which for any listeners, um, you can find it in the link below. But before we do that, um, we always like to start these shows just by revealing some of the humanity behind the the people who write these books. And so we have some fun questions for you here. And I think one thing that stood out for me from your bio, uh, Will, is that you went to Cambridge University for your PhD. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And so what is the best and worst thing about Britain? And emphasis on the worst, because as you might be able to tell, I'm Irish and, uh, you know, the... <laughs> <laughs> I got something for you for sure. Well, I'll start with the best. I think I, I can think of two things I really loved about uh, living over there. One was the National Trust. Just going to National Trust properties is so fun. We had so much fun doing that with our kids, and there's so much to see, and it's very cheap. So we really enjoyed that. Uh, another very great thing I liked about England is the vast variety of crisp flavors that you have. It's incredible. Um, I think probably the most exotic flavor I ever saw was Stilton and Port flavored crisps, mm. uh, which were just as you would expect them to be. Uh, so I love I love those uh, two things. I would say far and away the worst thing about living in Britain is the customer service, which does not exist, I would say. This is possibly exclusive to the English. I would say almost certainly exclusive. There is no customer service on the island, from what I can tell. Um, and I would say that in general, hopefully I'm not offending too many people here, but uh, inconvenience seems to be a national pastime. Uh, so that was... Uh, that was always a constant source of frustration. Okay. And when you say customer service, are you talking about if you uh, go just to with the, shops yeah. and so forth? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I def I have noticed, uh, you see, uh, the last few months I've been working for an American company uh, in uh, medical admin. And uh, uh -huh. though, though I'm Irish, um, I, I have noticed that the, the customer service standards for Americans, they expect very, very high um, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. You're 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 going to get pretty much anything you want as a customer. <laughs> right. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's how it is. Okay, okay. <laughs> and we'll we'll move on to another more theological fun question here. And uh, I think at this point, maybe I can say this is a classic question on this show. If you could ask a human Bible character not named Jesus one question, what would it be? Yeah, this is a good one. I thought about this for a while before I came up with an answer. And in my defense, before I tell you my answer, I I was thinking about what my students really pressed me on in some of my classes most most semesters. And this question really tends to 
to people want to linger on this because they really want to know, and I don't know the answer. Um, so I would ask Ruth to tell me exactly what it really was that she uncovered on the threshing room floor. I would love to know. I think that would add some real detail to the story um, because it is quite ambiguous. Yeah, isn't there... It can actually be interpreted in a kind of racy fashion, can't it? In yeah, the, that's... Yeah. That's what some interpreters would say. Others would say she just really didn't uncover his feet. Um, so you never know. That's what I. That's why I would want to ask. That is actually a, a very good one, and it's a very unique one as well. So that that has uh, revealed that you're mostly an Old Testament guy. Am I correct? Yes, this is yes. true. This is okay. True. Within the, that's of course one discipline in biblical stories, but within all these sub disciplines. Um, this is the final fun question. Which is one that you will never dare approach, and why? Uh, most of the sub-disciplines that people would never dare approach, I am already involved with. Um, so I had to think about this a little differently. I would say, personally, I would never dare approach Isaiah scholarship, uh, just sort of, which I think constitutes its own sub-discipline because it's such a vast. It's such a vast field in Old Testament biblical studies. Um, partly averse to it, not just because of the very complicated and debated questions involved, but also there is an absolute ocean of secondary literature that you would have to deal with in order to actually have anything to say. It's kind of like Pauline scholarship. It's such a huge field. Um, it just it, it boggles the mind. Mm. And could we lump the other two major prophets in with that, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, or is Isaiah just another different ballgame to that? Well, well there, there are different issues, but I would say Isaianic scholarship probably dwarfs uh, the other two in terms of scope uh, of what's been written out there. So as a, you know, thinking as a scholar or a, as a student, that's half the battle is you've got to get your hands around your own subdiscipline. Uh, so I always say choose a small subdiscipline. Yes, yes, right, right enough, yeah. I will say, like, for me, if I was to pick one of those three, I would have said Ezekiel, because half the time I'm reading him, I'm just thinking, what was this guy on? But um, oh, I know, yeah, I love Ezekiel. I, he's one of my favorite prophets to teach. Uh, yeah. For, for much the same reason. <laughs> yes. We'll get on to talking about your book, The Septuagint, what it is and why it matters. And, of course, you co-authored this with Greg Lanier. And yeah. it's interesting because if someone were to ask me what the Septuagint is, and maybe I'm, is it meant to be Septuagint or Septuagint, or how am I meant to be pronouncing this? Oh, you know, there's vast uh, debate on this topic as well. You can say it however you like. Okay, good, good. So if someone were to ask me what this thing is, um, I would probably say that it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, but it seems that part of your book, the point is to show that this is an oversimplification. And and so where would you begin in showing that the truth is more complicated than maybe that, that viewpoint? Yeah, good, good question. I think the best place to start is just thinking about the terms involved in Greek Old Testament, right? So each aspect of that has something that's not quite right about it, maybe except for the Greek part. Um, it is all in Greek, so that's correct. Um, but otherwise... Old Testament can have some some uh, shortcomings as a term when we think about what the Septuagint is. Uh, within the Christian tradition, uh, the Old Testament consists of the books uh, of the Hebrew Bible uh, and only the books of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, now, I say that, and immediately there's going to be some qualifications because it depends on what part of the Christian tradition you're talking about. Uh, in the Protestant tradition, you've got only the books in the Hebrew Bible. In the Catholic and Orthodox traditions, you have some extra books thrown in there. Uh, and these extra books are called the Apocrypha, uh, or sometimes in scholarly circles, the Deuterocanonical books. Um, and these books uh, are what they are, partly as a result of the Septuagint. They are ancient Greek writings produced by Hellenistic Jews, in and around the same time as the rest of the texts we refer to as the Septuagint. So to say Greek Old Testament kind of leaves some of that ambiguous. Um, but 
on the other side of the equation, the, the word Septuagint itself is also ambiguous. Uh, scholars themselves, uh, we use this term in different ways. Uh, probably it's right to say that ancient Jews, uh, in the rabbinical period at least, maybe earlier than that, would have thought about this term uh, primarily as the Greek translation of the Pentateuch, the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, early Christians, on the other hand, would have thought about it more as the Greek scriptures in general uh, of the Jewish people, not including New Testament writings. Uh, so there's differences in scope depending on who you're talking to and when, even when it comes to the term Septuagint itself. That's why it's so difficult to get your finger on. Yeah, and it's a, it's a bit of a glorious mess, isn't it? Just the it is, trying to it untangle is. this. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, a million questions come to mind when you uh, mention, when, when you're through some of the things you're saying there, but uh, there is antagonism that exists towards the, the Septuagint in, uh, in some very conservative Christian groups um, that I'm, I'm sure you're aware of. And um, do you think your book will help us to engage such people? Well, I hope so. I, I, I wouldn't say that's a primary focus of the book, but I do think it will equip people to respond uh, should they come across uh, people who are very suspicious of the Septuagint. That tends to uh, come from uh, uh, various parts within Christianity, especially more fundamentalist um, parts of Christianity. Uh, for example, young earth creationists or KGV only uh, circles that are much are very concerned. That's their sort of primary focus. Um, not exclusively those, but uh, that's where this tendency and suspicion tends to come from. And it's related to a number of things. For one thing, it's uh, partly related to the differences in the reported ages of the patriarchs that exists in the Septuagint. There's some textual variance there in terms of how old everybody lived to be in the Septuagint version. Uh, and then some differences in terms of how long the uh, kings of Israel and Judah reigned in the Greek versions as well. And so if you're a uh, very concerted young earth creationist trying to calculate exactly how old the earth is, then you've got problems there mathematically. Um, <clears throat> and uh, others look at the Septuagint as a threat in some way to the doctrine of Scripture because uh, the common claim, uh, sort of claim uh, you know, on the street, so to speak, is that the uh, authors of the New Testament quoted from the Septuagint. And so uh, some very fundamentalist-type uh, Christians will then worry, well, that cannot be true, because if Jesus and the apostles quoted from the Septuagint, then they must have thought the Septuagint is inspired. And if the Septuagint is inspired, then the Apocrypha uh, are inspired, these books that are outside of the Hebrew canon. Uh, and that simply cannot be. Therefore, it is impossible for Jesus and the apostles to have cited the Septuagint. Therefore, the Septuagint as a whole is probably a fraud. Uh, and so you, you kind of you kind of wind up in somewhat conspiratorial camps rather quickly, or you can. Um, but the, there are some concerns there that are legitimate concerns, although the solutions are are wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to clarify, so what would they say that the apostles are quoting from, if not the Septuagint? Yeah, so uh, I there's not usually a great answer that's given for that, not one that I've heard very uh, willingly offered, but I think in many cases the response will be that the apostles are uh, translating into Greek themselves on the fly. Um, so that's that's part of it. This is honestly not a set of arguments that you come across in writing all that often, um, and it's only the writings that do exist. Some, it's only something I've started to look into more closely. Uh, in the last two year, years or so. But it's something I want to understand more because I'd like to respond to it better. Yeah. And it, it, what, something uh, that interests me in your book is that you, you state at one point, and this is just quoting, um, some advocates go to such extremes in this view that they vigorously 
deny that the Septuagint existed at all before the time of Christ, especially because it includes apocryphal books. Um, so is this, um, is that a view that's held by any academics or is this exclusive to that crowd? No, this would be, this would be exclusive to that sort of crowd. And, and there's actually an important error to point out, I think, at this point. Um, when we think about the Septuagint, we need to be very careful not to think about it as some singly bound, coherent, unified entity that existed on the shelf in the days of Paul and the apostles, right? As if when they wanted to cite the Greek Old Testament, they just reached up to their shelf and pulled it off, and there it is. Uh, that's not how it was at all. They're the sort of Book technology was very different at that time. There weren't even uh, book formats uh, like we think of them. That's called the Codex. Uh, that didn't really come into existence until a little bit after the uh, Apostolic Age. Um, and so you had scrolls that you're working with. And the Septuagint is really better thought of as a collection of Greek texts uh, translations, as well as compositions, you know, original writings in Greek from the beginning uh, that were made by Jews starting in the 3rd century B.C. all the way through maybe the 1st or 2nd century A.D., not all at once, not by the same people, maybe not even in the same places, and some of them, when completed, were soon revised. Others were done over entirely. So you have quite a lot of diversity, <clears throat> no centralization, no coherent translation strategy. So it's really, it's easy to think about the Septuagint as if it's a, similar to a modern Bible translation uh, produced by a committee organized uh, sitting on your shelf. But that's really not how it was. And so there, you really can't say the Septuagint contained the Apocrypha because the Septuagint in some ways doesn't exist, which is the irony. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So you're talking about something that doesn't actually exist in, in this book. That's, uh, yes, yes. Um, and I suppose that kind of what you've said there um, might suggest that it's not only simplistic to say that the Septuagint was the Bible of the early church, it's also misleading to say that because immediately people are thinking there's, I don't know, Junia from uh, the church in Rome, and she's just sitting there and she has a Bible, a bound Bible with her in the pew, which is called the Septuagint. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, you, you, that is not how any really book production worked or, or how any uh, scriptural citation or circulation occurred in this period. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we can say in some ways that the Septuagint was the Bible of the early church, uh, in some qualified senses, but not not in that sense, right? We have to we have to nuance the sort of mental image we have uh, when we when we envision that. Okay. Yes. And at this point, um, this is more of a personal question, but of course, we've been discussing about a a kind of uh, production of the Bible which is uh, intriguingly messy. Um, so I'm I'm curious to know about yourself. What view of the Bible's production did you grow up with? Was there a time where you assumed it sort of dropped out of heaven, or were you aware of the complex uh, textual history of the Bible from from a young age? Well, I mean, I admit to this not being on the forefront of my mind as a young as a young man. Uh, I, in fact, I I in my college years I wasn't even a Bible major. Um, and it wasn't until I got to seminary that I really started thinking about the composition of the Bible at all. I grew up in the church, um, but I didn't really think much past the pages of the Bible that I had access to myself in English. Um, so I, I suppose if, if nothing else, it says that no one in my context as a young person, no one was really talking about the composition of the Bible, this, you know, this stability or reliability of the text. You do get that in some circles, but it wasn't really mine. Uh, in seminary, I, I would say most of the focus we, we, um, we had in class was on the text of the New Testament. Uh, we had text of the Old Testament discussed at certain points, um, but I think 
probably over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a lot more focus in uh, biblical scholarship, evangelical scholarship, much more focus on the textual state of the New Testament. Um, mm. It's its own area of scholarship. It's very fascinating. There's lots to talk about. Not quite as much has been said about the textual state of the Old Testament. It's a little bit, well, it's a lot more complicated, and we have less to go on. Um, so this is something I've done uh, a fair bit of thinking about by now, obviously. Um, but I guess my answer to your question is I didn't really grow up with any particular view. Um, it's something that has had to come over time. Right, right. Okay. That's that's fair enough. Speaking of the church and your everyday regular who goes to church, should we expect them to be informed about this? Or is this just something that has to stay within the confines of uh, academics, do you think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think this is a tough question in some ways. You know, I, <clears throat> I don't think you need to know every single detail about the textual history of the Bible to, to have confidence in Scripture. Um, but on the other hand, I do think, you know, I've known people who walk away from the faith, uh, and at least in part, they will cite the textual formation of the Bible as some some part of their, you know, reason for walking away from the faith. Um, and I think that's unfortunate most of the time, you know, whether or not that's a real reason for it. Uh, I don't know, but most of the time, sort of popular portrayals are cited as if they're gospel truth. Um, so I think one of the most important things for lay people to know is that there is a very good reason, there are very good reasons to be confident in the textual stability and reliability of the, of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. They may not need to know all the details, but I think they should know they should know that and they should be able to um, possibly even know where to go to find out more. That would be, I think, even better. And I know if someone were to pose this question to you, you'd probably have to answer, give an essay in response. But where would you begin to respond to someone who kind of, who was suggesting something along the lines of textual nihilism? You know, uh, there never was an original text of the Old Testament, or it was hopefully corrupted to the point that we can never know. How, how would you begin to respond to someone who comes to you with that kind of complaint or accusation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can commiserate or, or, or sympathize in many ways. You know, it is, it is a complicated question. It's a complicated area of study. And I think the most important thing to know about the textual formation of the Hebrew Bible is that we just don't have enough evidence to say as much as we want to. And this is where New Testament textual criticism, you know, is is blessed with or maybe cursed with a, a huge amount of evidence, textual evidence. I mean, just coming out of your ears in New Testament uh, textual criticism, thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts to work with and help reconstruct the ancient history of the text. In the Old Testament, it's not the same. Uh, we have good textual evidence. But we don't have nearly as much. Uh, it's not nearly as old, and it's much, much more difficult because there's so much less of it. It's much more difficult to create or recreate the history of it, right? You've got to give it a narrative of some of some kind. And I think it's important to know that because you can you can look at that and say, well, we'll never ever know, right? Um, and maybe that's true. Maybe we'll find more evidence. I hope so, uh, but maybe not. But uh, to the extent that you can go online and find, you know, narratives of where the Hebrew Bible came from and sort of who cooked it up and how unreliable it is, um, that is that is generated from the same amount of evidence as any other account might be. Right. So you have to make sense of the evidence in some way. There is evidence. There's not as much as we would like. Uh, and there are good ways of making sense of that evidence. Uh, that come out with a very different perspective, right? A perspective that is uh, uh, much more reassuring and uh, gives a sense of reliability and antiquity, which I think is very well and easily grounded on actual evidence just as much as any other view. I suppose when it comes to the Old Testament, um, what is it that we have? We have the Septuagint, 
We have the Masoretic text. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls. And is the other one the Samaritan Pentateuch? Are those the big four, or are there any other uh, things that we looked for comparisons? Yeah, those those are the big four. Um, so, right, the other the other ones you might throw in there, although these are sometimes considered daughter versions, are the Targums, which are the Aramaic versions of the Hebrew Bible, and then uh, you would have the Peshitta, which are the Syriac versions yes. of the Hebrew Bible, uh, and then the Vulgate. But those, uh, depending on kind of where you're looking, maybe translations of translation, right? So the big three are the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is just the first five books, uh, the Septuagint, and what we call the Masoretic Text, which is a 10th century Hebrew text that uh, was preserved uh, in the Jewish community, medieval Jewish community, uh, plus the Qumran uh, scrolls, right? And that's part of the reason why the Dead Sea Scroll finds were so exciting and important is because we suddenly had access to Hebrew and Greek manuscripts that were a full thousand years older or more than the next oldest Hebrew witness that we had with the Masoretic text. So, um, so that's, but beyond that, there's not, there's really not much. So, I mean, that's a lot in some ways, but it's not as much as we might like, not, not as old as we might like, uh, given the date that a lot of the Old Testament books were probably written. And here's an interesting uh, question that uh, the the skeptics who listen to the show might be might be most interested to hear your answer. What do you think is the most interesting textual uh, variant or variation found in the Septuagint, in your opinion? There, I mean, careful what I say here. There, there are many uh, interesting textual variants. Um, it depends on what you're thinking about. I mean, there are parts of the Septuagint that are not, I mean, not properly thought of as textual variants. They're really just completely different versions of a book. So, you know, for example, um, uh, the book of Judges has two different Greek versions. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, the books of Samuel and Kings have pretty pervasive differences as texts from Hebrew versions. Uh, those tend to be more considered literary versions rather than textual variants, right? Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's famous textual variants like um, uh, the virgin in Isaiah, right? So is uh, the Hebrew word for uh, used there is, is a little bit more generic than the Greek word, right? The Hebrew word means something like young woman. And the Greek word that translates it much more explicitly means virgin, right? And so this is, you know, has potential consequences for New Testament theology. Um, so there's plenty of there's plenty of juicy ones to pick. I thought one thing that came to mind right right away is because I think this is amusing is that you actually you have unicorns in the Septuagint. I don't know if you've ever heard about. Oh uh, yes, yes. So uh, this occurs about eight or nine times. There's the Greek word monokeros, which means one horn, uh, with one horn. And it's uh, an animal, translated as an animal each time. And it translates a Hebrew word, um, rem. And because it's, there's lots of funny aspects to this. It's fascinating. Uh, but because the Hebrew word itself is rare, and uh, the meaning of that Hebrew word is unclear, uh, the translators of the KJV uh, you know, back in the 17th century, they didn't know what to make of the Hebrew word. Uh, not a lot of Christians knew Hebrew at that time, and even Jews didn't know exactly what this rare Hebrew word meant. And so the translators of the KJV went to the Septuagint to try to figure out what to translate it with, and there is monokeros. And so in the KJV, you actually have eight unicorns. Um, so it's just a great irony because you have KJV onlyists who reject the Septuagint and KJV translators who rely on it um, in some cases. Um, so it's it's a fascinating thing. The question is why did the uh, why did the translators themselves use unicorn monokeros to translate that word? And there's a couple of possible answers to that. Uh, most scholars now look at that Hebrew word reim and think it probably means something like a wild buffalo or an extinct large uh, animal like a called an oryx. And uh, it's just a large two-horned animal. 
looks like a big bull. And uh, it's possible that the mythology of the unicorn, Greek mythology of the unicorn, developed uh, out of Mesopotamian depictions of the aurochs on relief, uh, sort of bas-relief stone inscriptions uh, or different paintings like the Ishtar Gate. Uh, Babylonian Ishtar Gate has one of these. And it's the aurochs in profile. And so the two horns look like it's just the one horn since it's seen only from the side. Um, so anyway, we don't know exactly why, but uh, but I I always point out to my students that the unicorn, there are unicorns in the Bible. That That is fascinating. I didn't actually know that it was actually a unicorn. I always thought that that was just a way of talking about some other animal. Uh, that, but okay, that that's cool that there are unicorns in the Bible. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, the the one that I've always been most interested with, uh, if I might say so myself, is um, the I think Deuteronomy thirty two. There's always that interesting variant in the, I think in the Masoretic text it says um, God divided up the land according to the number of the sons of Israel. It says that in the Masoretic, and then the Dead Sea Scrolls it says according to the number of the sons of God, and then in the Septuagint it says according to the number of the angels of God. <laughs> so you uh -huh, have some. Yes. You have some fascinating uh, theological uh, questions there, uh, which uh, yeah, we could we could spend a long time talking about that one. But <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, there's 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 that there's lots of cases like this. Another one is uh, Habakkuk two four, right, where uh, the righteous one shall live by his faith, uh, by my faith, or just by faith. And this is cited by Paul in the New Testament. So you really just you have some mess, messy situations that crop up sometimes in these textual variants, but that, that's why we enjoy ourselves when we're doing Septuagint scholarship. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> this is actually, that's a good segue to the next question, which is, um, and, and you actually state something along the lines of this in the book um, that I'll just quote here, though the intentions, of, we'll get on to speaking about what the letter of Aristas is in a second, but um, though the intentions of the letter Aris, of Aristas remain debated, it is important to recognize that the author defends the Septuagint, at least in part because he believes that it exactly corresponded to the Hebrew and thus conveys its authority. So that seems to suggest that, you know, um, exactness was to some extent important to these um, Jewish uh, folk. So I'm just wondering, is there evidence to suggest that the textual plurality that existed in the second temple period bothered the Jewish people? Or... Is there perhaps some evidence that it didn't actually, or was there kind of like a spectrum? Some people cared and right. some people didn't. I think, uh, yeah, you, you would certainly have to say it must have mattered to some people more than others, right? In similar ways that you have differences in, uh, in modern Christian circles on Bible translations or textual basis or whatever. Um, so, but I think there is plenty of good evidence uh, that it mattered a lot to to many Jews in this period, right? So, so um, again, the the I think what you just mentioned is one of the most important uh, points to make here is uh, this ancient account of where the Septuagint came from uh, does discuss very explicitly how the translation was um, so very accurate to the Hebrew originals that had been brought down to Egypt from Jerusalem by the high priest, authorized, so forth and so on. And so there's clearly uh, an attempt to defend the validity of the translation, uh, not only as authorized, but as accurate uh, and as made from the best copies available. So um, that's clear. And so that, I think we could say, is a concern of at least some Jews in living outside of the land, right? In this uh, uh, Ptolemaic or Hellenistic period, we're talking third century, second century BC uh, and onward. Um, another good uh, sort of line of evidence for this as well is um, the revisional process, right? So uh, as I said a little while ago, the Greek translations were made starting with the Pentateuch and the rest of the books of the Hebrew Bible. We're not totally sure about the order and timing of everything, uh, but they were made uh, in many cases 
uh, as sort of a first original Greek version. And then not too long after that, in some cases, as soon as a century later, um, those original Greek translations were revised. And in many cases, one of the main motivations, not the only motivation, but one of the main motivations for those revisions was to make the Greek translations that already existed a little bit more close to the Hebrew text in circulation. And in many cases, uh, that was a text very similar to the Masoretic text. We call that the Proto-Masoretic text. Um, and so this revisional process was taking place from the second century, first century, and then through the turn of the era. And it reflects a concern, of, uh, a pretty prevalent concern, I would say, uh, among the Jewish community in the Hellenistic period for their Greek versions to reflect a Hebrew text. Um, and it, it wasn't totalizing, it wasn't every single book, but there's certainly clear tendencies in that direction. Um, so, so yeah, there's definitely concern for accuracy, uh, and I guess you could say a bias against textual plurality. Mm. Although there is on the other side of it, something interesting is in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, don't we actually get examples of different copies of the same book? Which is a uh, which is an interesting uh, yeah interesting aspect uh, that perhaps right. obviously if they wanted to if they were happy keeping two different copies of the same book then uh, maybe that was okay to some people you know right so yeah again Jeremiah is a good example here where the Greek version of Jeremiah that we have uh, most would agree it was probably made from a Hebrew text that was shorter than our Hebrew text, right? It was a different version. Things were arranged differently. Uh, um, not uh, not as many, not all the verses are there, so, so on. So it's a different literary version of the, of the Hebrew Bible. So yeah, there is, uh, there is evidence for multiple versions and lots of uh, textual variants and so forth for Hebrew Bible books. Uh, but I think it's important to understand that uh, the fact that textual plurality existed, right? The fact that more than one version of a, of a given book of the Bible existed doesn't necessarily mean that those two versions or however many versions doesn't necessarily mean that they were regarded with, with you know, as equals, right? Like, I like this one just as much as the other one, right? uh, or regarded as equally legitimate or equally authoritative, uh, just in the same way that, and again, this is an imperfect example, but uh, someone may look at the NASB and the message and say, well, yes, they're both, I guess you can say they're both translations, but I like this one a lot better. Here's why. It's a much better version. It's more accurate. It's more detailed, blah, blah, blah. So, so the fact that the message and the NASB both exist doesn't mean that all Christians are completely fine with, with both, right? Yeah. You should have said the message in the Passion Translation, uh, just to... <laughs> Just to, yeah, just to troll the audience a little bit. Um, <laughs> so you uh, you mentioned the uh, the letter of Aristius. You alluded to that a little bit. Could you maybe just elaborate on uh, what exactly this is and uh, to what extent can it be trusted as giving an accurate picture of how the Septuagint came to be? Yeah. Um, so uh, this letter is uh, an ancient document that uh, was produced uh, probably in the second century BC, it's called the letter of Aristius or Aristeus. People say it different ways, just like Septuagint. And it is um, framed as an account of how the original translation of the Pentateuch into Greek uh, took place. And the basic story is that um, Demetrius of Phalerum is the royal librarian serving under King Ptolemy I. And he suggests to the king that they really should have a copy of the laws of the Jews in their royal library. And Ptolemy agrees. And so uh, Aristeus, the narrator, orchestrates uh, that process. So he reaches out to uh, his contacts in Jerusalem. They, bring, they authorize uh, six scribes uh, from each tribe. 72 translators in all come down to Egypt. They're given a royal uh, banquet. They all go off uh, and translate the uh, Pentateuch into Greek 
And uh, depending on which source you're looking at, some stories will say that they all came out and everybody's work was identical down to the letter. Uh, some some sources don't quite go that far, but that's the basic uh, that's the basic story. And then King Ptolemy himself reads the results, loves it, extols the God of Heaven, uh, and tells everyone how wonderful the Jews are. Um, so that I mean, there's lots more to it, obviously, uh, but that's the basic uh, outline. And this uh, this this is the Pentateuch only, right? So the first five books of the Bible. Um, but that basic story is. Um, taken to be accurate and historical for uh, really the next 1,400 years or so. Uh, it is elaborated upon and modified in certain ways. So early Christians tended to kind of expand that to uh, the whole Old Testament, not just the Pentateuch. Um, and some, uh, Jerome uh, and, and others, looked at it and um, used it as a way to regard the Septuagint as uh, inspired in some respect. Uh, but nowadays, most scholars, uh, even beginning in the early modern period, uh, most would agree that it is not historical. Um, now, obviously, some parts of it are quite supernatural, um, but uh, it is generally regarded as a kind of uh, basically a propaganda letter in some sense, right? Uh, and the idea being that <clears throat> it is portraying the Ptolemaic king, right, this Hellenistic king in Egypt, as deferential to the Jewish people, uh, deferential to the Jerusalem priesthood, uh, and maybe meant to encourage Hellenistic Jewish readers to be loyal to Jewish priesthood and the Ptolemaic king himself, right, this sort of synthesis of Judaism and Hellenism uh, that, that was the life of uh, Hellenistic Jews in Egypt. And it also, in, in, in a very prominent way, is meant to lend credibility to the Greek translation, like we were saying a little while ago, uh, as a valid and authoritative version of Scripture, although it was in Greek and not Hebrew. Um, so there are reasons uh, that it would have been written but there are also pretty clear indications uh, that it was not uh, quite a historical document uh, that it purports to be. Yeah, it, it does sound, when you were talking about it there, it did sound quite propagandistic, you know, just how it, the story sounds, ah, oh, that sounds way too rosy and golden, right. you know. Um, <laughs> well, you say golden, and in fact, in the letter, the scrolls that the uh, scribes bring down are written in gold, uh, actually written in gold. So it is quite golden in that sense. Right. Without sounding too history channelish, what really happened? Uh, could you give a, <laughs> could you give a brief snapshot of uh, what's the actual historical picture that emerges? You know, through separating fact from fiction and reading between the lines. What what do we get? Do you think? Yeah. Well, we can we can go history channel as long as we don't go ancient aliens. <laughs> it wasn't them. No, I, I think. <laughs> Um, people go different ways on this, right? And, and there are scholars are willing to entertain some historical aspect in the letter, uh, you know, some, some part of it, right? So you kind of, you have two, two questions, right? Uh, when it comes to what was the motivation for that original translation effort, did the motivation uh, come from within the Jewish community itself, or did it come from outside the Jewish community? From the perspective of the letter of Aristeus, the motivation was external, right? The king prompted them and said, hey, you guys, I need you to make this for me. And they did it. And some scholars today still would give that some level of credibility historically, right? It is possible that Ptolemy King uh, commissioned <clears throat> or sponsored in some respect the translation effort, okay? Um, Maybe that's all, right? That's th that is the uh, sort of only historical nugget we can take out of the letter. Although some would take a little bit more than that. Um, others others give more credibility or or sole credibility to an internal motivation, right? Where the Jewish community itself, uh, you know, there's some perceived need. Uh, we've got to come up with a translation. And so they sort of uh, get organized uh, and and do this Greek translation of the Pentateuch. 
Um, I tend to lean in that direction myself, and I would say most scholars today uh, would, would lean towards an internal motivation. Um, the most obvious internal motivation is that everybody was speaking Greek at this point, right? Even the Jews in Hellenistic Egypt, Greek is their first language. It has been for at least two generations. And so although Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, Aramaic continues to be spoken to some extent, Hebrew is pretty much a religious language at this point in the diaspora. And to the extent that the scriptures are used in worship uh, and religious settings, uh, even in the home, I think it's pretty obvious and sensible to say that uh, they wanted something in the language they spoke and their children spoke. Um, there may have been other factors uh, in addition to that. Uh, and it may have been some kind of blend, right? We know that um, the Jewish community received a kind of royal sponsorship for their houses of worship uh, from inscriptions on Jewish houses of worship. And so it may be that it was an indirect sponsorship, right? They may have said, okay, thank you, King Ptolemy, for your sponsorship this year. We're going to direct some of these funds ourselves to this translation effort, Um so it's hard to say, but I think there's plenty of uh, plenty of explanations that are sensible in the historical context. Yeah, and I definitely think that second option that you mentioned, it, it definitely sounds less elaborate anyway than um, yeah, right. the, to the first option. Um, so yeah, I, I think, uh, while I'm not an expert, I probably think, yeah, that one sounds more plausible. We get to the New Testament, which is... Um, they seem to be predominantly quoting from the Septuagint. Um, and of course, if, if anyone from a King James only camp is listening to this, they're probably uh, tearing out their hair and such. But um, um, I, what I'm interested in is, is there an example you could give of a New Testament author quoting from a different textual tradition? And uh, what would this be and why might it have happened? Yeah, um, good question. So, um, Again, we have to remember that when we say, quote-unquote, the Septuagint, uh, we are not talking about a singular entity. We're saying, or at least what I'm saying, is a New Testament author, as he is writing his letters, will cite Scripture in Greek, right? Because he is writing in Greek. Yeah. And so that right there is a motivation, right? I am writing in Greek. Everyone's reading this in Greek. Everyone speaks Greek in my world among other languages, so therefore, I need a Greek version of the Bible, okay, or uh, of the letter I'm citing. So that's one motivation. Um, but what, what did not then happen is that New Testament author then took some book off his shelf, right? Like we said before, um, we don't know what kind of textual situation uh, obtained in the early Christian context, right? But it is very likely the case that uh, local Jewish communities uh, in Jerusalem and elsewhere had copies of Scripture in Greek. We don't know whether or not they would have been kept in the synagogues, uh, sort of in the same cabinet as the Hebrew scrolls, right? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but there are, they're in circulation. And so I think it's fair to say that Paul would have studied scrolls in Greek from uh, the Greek Old Testament, Greek, he was studied the Hebrew Bible in Greek. It sounds funny to say it that way, but yeah. Um, and he may have had uh, copies of it himself. I don't know uh, whether he would have hauled these around with him. It's not easy to haul around a whole scroll; they're very heavy. Um, but he may have had uh, excerpts, right? Sort of, um, uh, basically sort of extracts of key texts on a scroll, these sort of um, uh, testaments like that, which we know existed. Uh, maybe Paul or other New Testament authors consulted scrolls that happened to be accessible to them, right? So uh, when Paul's in Thessalonica, uh, he consults the scrolls there. Uh, when he's in Rome, he consults the scrolls there uh, that are in the possession of the Jewish community. So it's that is part of the reason why we have variety in the textual traditions of the, of the texts that New Testament authors cite. So as a New Testament author is creating, you know, mounting an argument of theological points about Christ or the church or whatever, uh, he is going to cite scripture, meaning the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And in, in not a few cases, 
When that happens, uh, you know, the author will say, as it is written, quote the text, and the text that is quoted, we take that and we open up our Hebrew Bible and compare it, right? It looks different. And, in, and that difference, by and large, is because a New Testament author is citing the Septuagint, quote-unquote, with all the qualifications we just had. Mm. So I'll give you an example, since that's what you asked for. There's a lot of good examples. But uh, one more popular one I get asked about in class sometimes is Hebrews 10, 5, and 6, uh, where we get a quote of Psalm 46. Okay. Now, one of the things that's complicated about all this is that a lot of times verse references are different in English, Hebrew, and or Greek. So yes. uh, so it's Psalm 46 in English, uh, Psalm 39.7 in Greek, and Psalm 47 in Hebrew. Okay, so we'll skip the rationale there. But, um, but this is the text where um, it says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This is what the author of Hebrews cites. Uh, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Okay, A body you have prepared for me. Now, if you open your English Old Testament, translated from Hebrew, and open to Psalm 40, verse 6, you're going to read something different. It doesn't say, a body you have prepared for me. It says, uh, but you have given me an open ear. Or it may say, ears you have dug for me. Okay. And so now you have this predicament. Okay. Here you have a New Testament author citing the Bible, making a theological point based on that citation, but citing a version of the Bible that does not agree with the Hebrew text. Is that a problem? Well, this is where people go a lot of different directions. Um, so what will we say about this particular example? Well, you can read the book, but I'll give you a little bit of a preview the author's, uh, author of Hebrews is using uh, the imagery available in the Greek version of this psalm, imagery of piercing a slave's ear to indicate ownership, uh, or maybe just the sort of metaphor of opening an ear so that uh, you can hear, right? Uh, ears to hear the Lord's commandments, this sort of thing. That's what's in the uh, Hebrew text, right, of this particular verse. But the author of Hebrews cites a Greek version where the imagery is changed to the body, right? Body you have prepared for me. Um, so there's two questions, right? We can ask the question, how did that textual change occur in the Greek translation itself, right? Was the Greek translator looking at a Hebrew text that said that in Hebrew, and then he just translated it into Greek? Or did the change occur in the translation process itself for whatever reason? Um, that's a sort of a separate conversation. Uh, but the body imagery that is only available in the Greek version is key to the theological point of the author of Hebrews. Right? Mm -hmm. He is arguing that the repeated offerings of animal bodies in the sacrificial system is no, no, not necessary anymore because of the... Uh, singular sacrifice of Christ's body, which is why he came into the world. So this body imagery is very important. Um, so the theological implications uh, or the hermeneutical implications, you know, need to be discussed and unraveled from there. Uh, but this is not an uncommon situation. I think in whatever chapter we talk about this in our book, uh, we must give half a dozen or more examples of this sort of thing, maybe maybe closer to a dozen. Uh, so you can you can check those out, but it is like I said, it's not uncommon. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose the one million dollar question that everyone will be thinking is: Is the Septuagint the the inspired word of God, and or or should we say the Masoretic is the inspired word of God, and the Septuagint isn't, or how do you think, how would, obviously you don't have to solve this in two minutes or whatever, but how would you start to put, to answer that question, to put it all together? Yeah, uh, I think, I think this is a common question and it's a, the, the impulse is right, uh, but it's, it's not framed correctly, right? Although that's tends to be how people approach it, right? Yeah. 
because the texts that we have and call the Masoretic text or the Septuagint are the process of a long, long chain of transmission and modern editing in some cases to print actual physical texts. Um, so what we, I think, are what we want to ask, what we should ask is, where is where is the locus of authority, right? And the answer to that question is in the Hebrew original text, right? Um, so things get more complicated from there because then you have to ask, well, how do we get that, right? And the answer to that question is through the process of textual criticism where we gather all the evidence and we work with it to try to reconstruct where necessary uh, a better text based on that evidence, okay? So um, when it comes to a case like we talked about in Hebrews 10, you can say, okay, well, don't we have a conflict here, right? Because we have a Hebrew text that says A uh, in this psalm, and then a New Testament author citing it, and it says B. So which is authoritative, right? Because let's assume for the moment that the Hebrew reading in the Hebrew Psalm 40 is authoritative, right? Don't we have a conflict of authority? Um, I don't think we have to look at it that way. When a New Testament author cites uh, really anything, be it uh, uh, the scriptures, right, the Hebrew Bible in Greek, uh, or uh, Epictetus or some other Greek uh, tragedians or writers, you know, that sometimes occurs in the New Testament, uh, what we don't have to do is say, okay, well, I guess all of Epictetus is inspired, right? The same, the same logic uh, applies to the Septuagint, quote-unquote, right? We don't have to say, oh, well, goodness, author of Hebrews has quoted Psalm 40 in Greek, therefore the whole Septuagint must be inspired, uh, as if it's, uh, you know, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole loaf, right? That's not necessarily, uh, I think, the best way to do it. When a New Testament author cites a text, what is authoritative is the truth claim that's being established in the citation of that text, not the text itself, as if we need to rip that out and plop it into the Old Testament uh, as a better reading. So this is, it's a complicated, it's a complicated topic, and that's part of the reason we devote it, uh, an entire chapter to it. It's, it's our last chapter. But we look at it in terms of kinds of authority, right? The Hebrew uh, original has what we call normative authority. The Septuagint translation, just like any translation, uh, has a kind of derivative authority, right? And to the extent it has any authority as a translation, as the Word of God, it has it as a derivative version, okay? Um, and then uh, beyond that, you may say some translations have a kind of interpretive authority, right? It's a lesser kind of authority helps us understand the meaning of Scripture, uh, assuming it's accurate, uh, that also has a, a sort of authority in the Christian life. So that's a long answer, but it's a complicated question. And that was hugely helpful. And I really appreciate how you articulated that. And, um, and of course, the audience can see how you articulate in even greater detail in the book. Um, but yeah, it is, you know, when I was thinking about what you're saying, it is, inspiration is a very paradoxical topic, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes to it. One one question I'm always wondering is, so I have to say that when when the Apostle Paul quotes um, these, um, these Greek writings, uh, Greek plays or Greek poets, that is, that, that is equally as God-breathed, equally as inspired as John 3.16, you know, we somehow have to hold this as Christians, and it's not—it's not an easy thing to do, you know. Um, right, but but it doesn't mean that again, like that Epictetus or you know Enoch is cited in Jude. Uh, it doesn't mean that those texts themselves are inspired. It means that the author of the, the New Testament author is inspired. His text yeah. is inspired. It is a it is a, a delicate and complicated issue, but it's an important one. Just to to wrap up, um, as I imagine. Quite a few people who listen to this podcast are not only interested in scholarship, they're also interested in defending the faith, that kind of thing. And um, what would your advice be to Christian apologists who 
you know, they they want to talk to skeptics about um, textual criticism side of things, and will they want to defend the faith about this? What what would your advice be to them in closing? Yeah, I think <clears throat> um, getting a grasp of the complexity is important, uh, even if you uh, don't get your hands around every little detail of it. Right, simply getting acquainted with the complexity, understanding how to navigate it um, is, is very important because it can help diffuse some of the uh, errors we've discussed, right? And sort of how to conceptualize the Septuagint, what it meant to cite a text in antiquity. Um, and it can help us take things on a more case-by-case -case basis and avoid sweeping generalizations, right? So, we have to be uh, accurate in our understanding of how scripture was written and uh, copied and passed down. And we have to be accurate in terms of the sorts of things that were possible in the historical context that the New Testament authors wrote in. Um, and I think when we do that, uh, we have a lot, a lot of opportunity for better nuance. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I'd like to, I'd like to thank you then for, uh, coming on and uh, discussing your your book with us it's, it's been fascinating and uh, hopefully uh, hopefully this uh, this blows up and you know in a few months you're being interviewed on I don't know <laughs> Jimmy Fallon or whatever and okay. yeah. <laughs> that would be interesting uh, well thank you so much it's it's really been fun to be on here and um, yeah just appreciate it <laughs>